All right, Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have to uh, be inspired by uh, your story through scripture this morning. We just ask that through today's lesson, through our time of discussion, our time in prayer circles today, that just these moments of gathering together intentionally as community would just open our hearts to new possibilities for a space like this for each one of us, for your divine love, that we all leave feeling closer to one another and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. You showed up on a super snowy uh, Sunday morning. Um, I want to talk about it's Lenten season, so we're looking at, uh, especially at Bloom here, we're looking at connecting, uh, not just connecting with the suffering of Christ, but connecting with those who he suffered for, the heartbeat of divine, those who he loves. And so today I want to talk about the inclusion of Jesus, and especially the likability versus popularity, and the ginormous difference between the two, and what that does for us. Um, so when I was in elementary school, my mom had a clothing store, and I got clothes from that clothing store, which usually if your mom would have a clothing store, you'd be like, ooh, I have access to the best stuff, which probably was great quality. Oshkosh Bagosh was probably fantastic quality, but it was definitely not the most popular threads to be bearing in the playground, especially. And so I was Oshbosh, I can't even say it. You, those, I don't know if you remember the commercials of people trying to say it. I was just outfitted in this stuff, just head to toe. And um, yeah, that did not do super well for my popularity. Um, I also never had cable at home, and so you can't relate to the weird shows that were on or things like that. And the two were like a death blow to popularity. Like, oh man, this kid is just, he's not watching... Bart Simpson, because I don't have that channel, although I appreciate what the Simpsons are now doing for, for society, and I dress in Oshkosh Bagosh, and so you're instantly just sidelined as like, oh crap, there's that kid. And uh, you get used to it, uh, you overcome it, I want to say in a way, uh, thankfully for me, I all of a sudden shot up and was tall going into elementary or middle school, and um, played basketball, and I was in a punk rock band at one point in the school, and so you gain some form of, I guess, approval in the eyes of those looking. But what's amazing at school is sometime, it definitely doesn't happen in elementary school, sometime between that bridge of middle school and high school, it's obvious who the popular kids are, the ones that are either super athletic talent or they've got the coolest clothes or things like that. Uh, and that was the other thing I changed in middle school is I started buying my own clothes. I was like, this has got to change. And there was a couple bumps in the road as you're attempting to figure out what you wear, but um, that bridge from middle school to high school, somewhere in there, you don't just have the popular ruling class anymore. There's also this second class that kind of opens its, its eyes to you, doors to you, of the, those kids who are not in that class, who just accept you for whatever you are. And those kids seem to be on a journey with you where you find those passions together and it didn't matter how different our we, we didn't we weren't bonded together because of likes it was we were all people looking after you know fi trying to figure out what we liked and what was going on. I mean you find things you like we ended up you know the play kids stick together or the band kids stick together or things like that but there was a there was an overall general 
community that you knew you fit in just because you didn't fit in in the other group, the popular group. There was something more going on here. And I loved that feeling. I soaked it up because for six years of elementary school, I was the Oshkosh Bagosh kid who didn't have cable. And all of a sudden, you fit into some group. Some group accepts you, likes you, wants you in, a, in as part of that. And so I got used to that feeling of, man, I belong here. These are my people. There's something going on here. I remember at one point, though, um, it was like junior or senior year, there was like the first Bible study started in the school. And I grew up in a Christian household, and so I'm like, oh, Bible study, I'm going to show up at this thing. I was instantly rejected as, oh, no, you are not good enough to be a part of the Christian kids going to Bible study after school. You're a mess. And so you're just like, well, sh that was a really awkward feeling. Like, I really don't want to be here any longer either, so it's not like you're fighting to be in. But I remember the imprint that things like this make on your life. And as you go forward and as you see who seems to be included or excluded from churches or religion or things like that, I remember even my friend Jesse was in town once and spending the night with us for the weekend, and we ended up bringing her to our church service at one point. And I remember having someone there that was an outsider that didn't grow up in Christian faith, like just tuned my hearing just ever so differently to what was being said. And I remember hearing statements and being like, oh, I wonder how that's going to look, and looking over and be like, oh, there is shock and awe in the eyes of my friend who's here, who's still being loving and graceful for being here, but maybe the language wasn't as loving and beautiful as I thought. And so I don't know about you, I don't know if you can relate to having, we've all must have moments where you felt like, man, I'm embraced by this community, this group of people, this group of friends, and these other times where you're like, I just don't fit in. And it's, it's glaringly obvious, or if someone is trying to make it glaringly obvious, like, you, you should probably go home, this isn't the place for you. Now, if we look at the life of Jesus and find our inspiration in Lenten season, like who he loves and we're looking at inclusion, and uh, I think there's something really beautiful to just talk about and to absorb. It's a, I mean, we even set the chairs up a little more different. They're always kind of a circle arc, but I wanted even more semi-circle arc to just try to be in each other's vision, to be together today, to have something more than this. Um, there's something beautiful about this life of Jesus that we find ourselves inspired by to the point where we call ourselves followers of this, is this radical life of inclusion, of letting people know that they belong, letting people know that they're not alone, letting people know that they were wanted, needed, appreciated. Jesus is the ultimate includer. He's the ultimate line eraser, and that's really a sentence that we're just line erasing that we're going to talk about a little more today. I know we've talked about it in the past as being this characteristic of a follower of Jesus, is erasing lines, not creating new lines that divide us. And in a society and a time where we seem to, uh, I think the internet has helped us connect in some ways, but I, in some ways I think it's drawn more lines, where now it's okay to be a nerd or a gamer or whatever, but you put this line around yourself, and no, I'm, I'm in this box, I don't need any other boxes, but we box everyone. Oh, I'm trying to figure out what box you're in when I'm at a party, what box you're in, and we put each other and we're, we're drawing lines, we're separating, we're trying to figure out instead of being the person who's erasing lines at these events. We see Jesus completely dismantling structures of who's in and who's out, these man-made hierarchies of what's going on, and how do, how do we learn from that then in this, this season of reflection going up to Easter of looking at what we can do more? I want to start with Romans 5-7 this morning. Paul is talking to the church of Romans, and he says, Accept one another in the same way that the anointed has accepted you, 
uh, so that God will get the praise that he's due. There's this acceptance that we look after and we find inspiration from the way Jesus did it. It says so that God will get the praise that, that ultimately this reaction, this living this way, people are going to be like that. I just associate that with the divine. That's, that must be God. There's something so beautiful about what's going on. 2 Corinthians 5.20 is a verse or set of verses that we really inspired us to start the community. It was one of these foundational uh, sets of scripture where you're just like, there's something about this that we need to embody and live by. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.16-20, it says, We don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once, and we got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him this way anymore. Now we look on the inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new begins. Look at it. All this comes from God, who settled this relationship between us and him. And this us here is not a singular us, or this just this group that Paul's talking about. This is a universal us. God who settled the relationship between himself and humanity, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God has put the world square with itself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God's given us this task of telling everyone about what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives. God is using us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. It's this universal call of dropping differences, of erasing lines, of starting to tell people we actually all belong. There's no in, there's no out, there's no you look different or you look that. And if we look at the life of Jesus, it's, it's amazing how many spheres he actually goes about doing this in. The complaint about him from the Pharisees is he spends too much time with people without some kind of preconditions, without something else going on, that his associations, his meal-sharing practices, the people he would be up too late at night with, that he would drink too much with, he was too non-discriminate. Like, how could you be with these people? And there's a time in Luke 15 where it says, Jesus became increasingly popular among notorious sinners, tax collectors, other social outcasts. And the Pharisees and religious scholars noticed this, and they said, who is this man who welcomes immoral people and enjoys their company over a meal? And this is just the beginning to what he's doing. Jesus' ministry of inclusion, or rather, if we really look at it, is a ministry against exclusion. It's not just he's including, he radically combats exclusion in all parts, religious areas, society areas, family areas, opening us up to new possibilities and ideas that we're all in this together. According to some um, religious teachers, Jesus' ministry is... is um, is radical inclusion, not just inclusion, because he offers invitations to all he encounters without some kind of preset inclusion or prohibition. There's nothing in his way of who he's deciding to invite or be a part of, except people who are excluding others. It's the only time we see him hit the brakes and say, well, look at what your behavior's doing. Look at what your actions are doing. We see him vehemently start to raise something, holy hell, anger. Like we see him frustrated by someone who would turn something that was meant to include into something exclusive. Exclusion 
really is almost this aboriginal sin, this something that has been going on since the beginning, the one that roots in so much of the problems that we're seeing around us in life. And so following Jesus, or following this example like Paul suggests that we do, means us retaking a look at how we're living our life. Where can we roll back boundaries? Where can we deconstruct categories? Where can we flatter or completely flatten any kind of moral or social hill that's been made to get in the way of people being unified, being in this together, and understanding that this is the mission of Jesus and God that he's come for. It's not just between him and us, he says, it extends to even us and each other. I want to say that um, I think this starts with just even the fact of God becoming human. Coming, living a human life, embodying human flesh, going through temptations, going through pains, going through trials, living life. Hebrews says so that he isn't just some aloof high priest that he can sympathize with us. He sympathizes with the human condition, the emotion, the fragileness of it, the hierarchies of society. He's lived in our shoes. He doesn't just be like, I think I've got it. I look down at Sam and Jess and I see their life from this vantage point. I think I get a feeling of it. It's like us watching a TV show and seeing kids starving in Africa and it's been two hours since we eat, so we feel the grumble. I'm like, I think I know what they're going through. I'm hungry right now. That would suck to be hungry always. Instead of actually going to Africa and not eating for 14 days, 15 days, a month, and saying, God, this is torturous. Feeling what it's like to have dust in your mouth at all times and no clean water to wash it out. Like there's something different between, there's a line that's been erased now between divine and man, where he says, I decided it was worth walking in your shoes so I could understand better. And this is the beginning we start from. He erases this line. He starts to erase lines and tensions between insiders, outsiders, Gentiles, uh, people who are clean, people who are unclean. We see Paul talking to the church in Galatians. He says that in Christ it makes no difference whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're slave or free, whether you're man or woman, because in Jesus the anointed, the liberating king, you're all one. And he chose these ones in particular because of the group he was talking to, but add any line here, and it can be said about Jesus. We see him starting to change what foods separate us, even in saying it's all clean, it's all permissible, but don't get in the way if someone decides that they can't eat pork or they want to abstain from meat altogether like just start to let that not be what's dividing you let that between be between them and god he heals the woman who's who's bleeding who is this 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 moment where she's been bleeding for so long that she's unclean in society she can't be around people and he welcomes her in and heals like nothing is going on he invites tax collectors and even a, uh, a political zealot who thinks Killing even his fellow countrymen is the way to get what they need in life out of it. He invites them to be followers and he takes them as his inner team, his core friendships, and says there's something still on the inside of you. He erases even boundaries that we would say are healthy boundaries. Like these, these guys are extremists. Like we should maybe watch out from that. That's not even enough. He's with prostitutes. He's with uh, people who are just robbing others and he's welcoming him them in and saying they belong, that they're welcome, that they're needed, that there's something more here. 
We see him doing this even to those who are oppressing this people group he's a part of. We see the Roman soldier, there's a story of a Roman soldier coming, asking for healing for his daughter and Jesus doing it, and then pointing out to the group of people around him, he's not just helping this oppressor, but he's going to point out how his faith is in some senses more superior than all those who are around him. This guy who's trampling on them, that wore a sword at all times because they wanted to show the might and the force of the Roman Empire. And he says, your faith is unseen, even in this group. It's, it's amazing. He points out where there's something beautiful in this oppressor's life. Religious traditions, we see him starting to tell us, like, yeah, there, there's religious traditions, but they're for you. He heals on the Sabbath, and people freak out. You're not supposed to do that. That's not the rules. You're supposed to rest on this day. He's like, yeah, but the rest was to help us, not to get in the way again. If something becomes a hill that's getting in the way of us, being together and inclusive, he's like, it doesn't matter. Even a religious tradition that goes far back as coming from the Ten Commandments, or even before that, the divine has set up this example of we should rest. And he's like, but it was meant for you. It wasn't meant to be a stumbling block. And so even religious traditions, no matter how important they are, he's like, if they become a stumbling block, he's like, we've lost the importance of it. And we see him wash over these things. This line eraser. We see even religiously, we hear these statements like, I'm Christian, you're Muslim, or you're Buddhist, or someone's atheist, and we start to draw these lines of who we are and what we believe, and it doesn't seem like Jesus needs to know those boundaries with the people he talks to and with, with what's going on for him. He seems to erase even this line and tries to tell each other to see each other as brothers and sisters as all being united under God. And there's a story that I want to... Uh, talk about that reaches so many of these things. It's the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus comes across. Because there's so many boundaries squashed, so many lines erased in this one story. Race, religion, social barriers, female obstacles between male and female and their hierarchy and their place in society, all taken care of in this one story. And I want to start with, like, Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman in Samaria at her own well. But the Samaritans to the Jews were like the enemy. It, it, it was like the Packers to Minneapolis, the Minnesota Vikings fans. I mean, or even worse than that, because it, it had so many ties. Like, these were, it wasn't just, you really annoy me, and I don't want you to be around when I'm cheering for my team. It's, I think you're detestable, and you're ruining everything that, that makes what I feel is good, good. There was a, a time a thousand years before Jesus' time is where this fight between the Samaritans and the Jews started when there was kind of a, a separation between the two of them. And these Samaritans started getting cues from other societies. They started marrying people from other races. They started taking in idols and being interested in the worship practices of other religions. They started mixing, matching, they were doing these things. And to make it even better, actually this makes me like these guys even more. They built their own temple on their mountain and said it's better than their temple in Jerusalem. And it just like enraged this people group. They're just like, who are these? Like, you just can't get lower than this. They're not pure Jews. It's just a mix of religion and all that. It's just a mix of mess. It's just, what is this? And so this is where we pick up. And Jesus says in this small Samaritan town, Jesus and his entourage have stopped to rest. And this is about noon. And Jesus finds a spot to sit close to the well when the disciples kind of venture off to find some provisions. Um, 
From this vantage point, it says, he watched a Samaritan woman approach to draw some water and unexpectedly speaks to her, would you draw me water and give me a drink? And this woman is shocked. Shocked. She says, I can't believe you. A Jew would associate with me, a Samaritan woman, much less ask me to give you a drink of water. She's just like, what the, what is going on? And it's obvious from the stories you see in the scriptures about the Samaritans and the Jews, that the Jews are much stronger about their hatred to the Samaritans than the Samaritans are back. But she's just like, did I wake up in the wrong town? Like, are, do you realize who I am and what town you're in? You're a Jew, you're associating with me, a woman in front of this well, you're asking me for a drink. Because uh, a man never approaches a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, to ask for anything like this. This is smashing social barriers and smashing race or um, this sexual class that is such a mess during this time. He says to her, he says, you don't know the gift of God who's asking you for a drink. Because if you did, you'd have asked me for something greater and he would have given you living water. And the woman says back to him, sir, you sit by this deep well, a thirsty man without a bucket in sight. Where does this living water come from? You are claiming superiority to our father Jacob, who labored long and hard to dig and maintain this well so he could share water with his sons and his grandchildren and his cattle. And Jesus says, drink this water and your thirst will be quenched only for a moment. But you must return to this well again and again. But I offer a water that will become a wellspring within you that gives life throughout eternity and you will never be thirsty again. The woman says, please, sir, give me this water so I'll never be thirsty again and I'll never have to make this trip this well. I want to pause here for a second. Many of you maybe have heard this story before, um, maybe not, maybe it's the first time, but I want to point out the fact that, mo- that all times that you've been at church and they talk about this, this thirst being quenched, this living water, there's something that God is going to give you that's going to change things. It's come from this story. This is where it, this is the only time it's told. This is where it comes from. And I want us to take a moment that it seems like nothing in Scripture is just happen happenstance. The reason this is in this story is he is crossing out so many social divides, so many statuses, so many lines are being erased, smashed, destroyed, to the shock and awe of not just this woman, but even we'll see when the disciples come back, they're like, what the hell is going on, Jesus? Like, do you realize where you are, who you're talking to? Like, like in this context of so many barriers being broken is where he says, I've got living water, if you would just ask me for it. If you just pay attention to the one you're sitting with, to the one you're watching. We see so many verses that point back to this inclusion, giving us some kind of life. And we see Jesus saying he's the life-giving water that we can drink from in the midst of a story of him smashing so many barriers in front of us. The woman says in verse 19, Sir, it's obvious that you must be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped here on this mountain, but your people say that Jerusalem is the only place to worship. Which is it? It's good to note here, too, that the Jews didn't even think these were like half-Jews. These were, this is a different religion. These were idol worshippers. This is, these are witches. Let's go to the witch village. Jesus is drinking water with a witch. What is he doing? This is craziness. Jesus says back to the woman, he says, I tell you, neither is so. No mountain, no religious group is right here. Neither one of them is the right way to worship God. He says, believe this, a new day is coming. In fact, it is already here. When the importance will not be placed on the time or the place of worship, but the hearts of the worshipers. You worship what you don't know, while we worship what we 
No. But for God's salvation, um, but God's salvation is coming through me through the Jews. He says, the Father is a spirit, and he is seeking followers who will worship in truth and deeply, uh, in truth in a deeply spiritual way, regardless of whether you're in Jerusalem or on this mountain. If you do not seek the Father, then you do not worship. And the woman says, these mysteries will be made clear by he who has promised the anointed one. And Jesus says, the anointed one is speaking to you. I'm the one that you've been looking for. We see at this moment, says the disciples return, and they're gathered around him in amazement that he would openly break these customs by speaking to this woman. None of them would ask him what he was looking for or why he was speaking to her. They were just dumbfounded. It says the woman goes back to the town, leaves her water pot behind, and starts telling people all about Jesus. This woman, it says later, changes the whole town, ends up being fascinated and finds out about Jesus. Through a woman, through a woman that Jesus wasn't supposed to talk to, through a conversation with a different religious group. He starts to say, neither of us are right. There's a new day here. And we're looking at something different. And he says, I've got some kind of life-giving water. Can we find it? Can we look to this together? Jesus upset people everywhere he goes. But most of the time, if you pay attention to what he's upsetting, it's these lines he's erasing. It's always some hill, someone put up, some barrier, some rule, some thing that would make someone in or out that he has now erased. And they are, they're pissed. They, they just can't fathomably see how the world can exist if we start erasing these lines. And he just keeps doing it over and over and over again. To the point where sometimes the disciples are like, we got to get out of here. Like, you were pissing so many people off. Like, you're going to die tomorrow. And eventually he knows his he says, so many times my time isn't here yet, but still then avoids that town and goes somewhere else because even he knows, like, I'm stirring the pot pretty hot here with what's going on. The thing that's amazing in his obsession, is, is upsetting the system, is that what it does is it equalizes everyone he comes in contact with. He's like the great equalizer. He sets the plane straight. And we haven't even begun with grace yet, saying that there's absolutely nothing you can do to get you in better standing with God or anything you can do that's so bad that would mess up your standing with God. That's... That's an includer, in a, a equalizer in itself. We're just talking about people groups, people types, men, women, who you worship, where you're from. He starts equalizing all this and invites us into this. And he invites every person he comes out to, to see themselves as clean and accepted and whole. Not dirty any longer, not outsiders, not outcasts. This mutual community of clean so he asks us to follow him. He asks us to accept others as Jesus has accepted us, especially those who are different than us, for the glory of God, that verse said, so that God would get glory, so people would look at the way you accept, the way you erase lines, the way you change the people who are around you, and people would say that God must be involved in this action. In this acceptance that we're talking about, I think it means so much more than tolerate. I'm going to tolerate you. Because I don't see tolerance in Jesus here. I see something so beyond that, so much deeper, so much more warm and loving and rooted in the divine energies that can take place, that can cumulatively come together, that the scriptures say God is love. And he says that you can take all the prophets and any scriptures and any stories of me that have gone on, and he's like, you can reduce them all down to this one statement, to love your neighbor as I have loved you. As Jesus loved this people group he walked with, as he included them, as he erased these lines, as he said that everyone was clean and forgiven, he said, 
that love your neighbor just like that. Let that be your guiding force. Let that be the rule that erases other rules, that, that calls us to something different. And so as we're looking at this then, in this Lenten season, this connecting with who Jesus loves us, looking at our life and being like, how do I live it and what's going on? The question to ask ourselves today, I think, is what lines need to be erased in your life? Not in society as a whole, like yet if you're confronting it, yes. But today and in this season, what lines are you coming across specifically? You know someone who's up against a line that needs to be erased. Where can you erase these next week? Where can you roll back boundaries or deconstruct categories that have been put up and let someone know that they're appreciated, that they're loved, that they're needed? This is this radical hospitality that we talk about, that we want to embody, that we, that we live to be as followers of Jesus. If we're not doing this, if we don't love our brother this way, it's like, do we even know who Jesus is? Do we really understand what he stands for? Do we miss all the stories and all the lines erased and think, God, it's got to be something different? Because you know what? It can be missed. Like, it was so depressing researching this message. I, I can't even begin to tell you how many people were, well... He's divine, so he knew the people he would come across would eventually become Christians. And so only those were the people he encountered. And it's out of this. And I'm like, how does it? He says to be an example of that. So how do we walk in that? That I'm supposed to like, mm, I think TJ is going to be a Christian someday so I can love you. But Allie is definitely not. That girl is sketch. So I'm not going to love you. Like, it just seems like such BS. Again, another little rule that can accommodate all of our judgment and hierarchy and because you know what if we're honest hierarchy is pretty awesome because once we find out where we are we can look at who's beneath us and we can feel pretty good about where we're at then like at least i'm not them or at least i don't look like this person or at least i don't understand this you know last week as part of the message it actually was in discussion we ended up talking about um giving money to the poor and i give this statement, you know, I've, I've always had this rule in my mind that I, that I go by that I, I'll buy a meal or a bus ticket or whatever, you know, like I'll go and actually buy them something, but I don't give money to the poor. And thinking I'm so just, and Cassandra says this beautiful thing, well, she's like, I just do it to whoever. I don't know who needs it or not or what they're going to use it for. And I'm just like, wow, that it just kind of hit me. I'm like, well, Jesus, does he tell the disciples I only do this? And then I'm reading this nonfiction book that I'm just digging right now. And in it, in this book, my, the character I love is in the city, and he, he ends up seeing a guy in need, and he gives money to him. And the person he's walking with is like, you know he's just going to buy whiskey with that. And the guy I love says, I would. And it just, like, hit me. I'm like, if I was homeless, oh my, I would love a glass of whiskey. You know, there's whatever. This is not the merits of whatever. But it struck me. It's so different. And now every time I see someone that, with the sun, I'm like, oh, they're cold. It's winter in Minnesota. If I was in their shoes... Yes, I want to eat and all those other things, but whiskey sounds pretty good sometimes. And so who am I to like, who am I to judge? Jesus says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Like, who are you to judge my children, the people I love? You just give your love freely and trust that I'm going to figure this stuff out. And so I was drawing a line. I didn't even realize this moral, like, well, I'm trying to help them because they're asking for my help. And so I'm going to put up boundaries to make sure that they're not going to use my help inappropriately. And you're just like, wait a minute, it's just another social construction that I'm starting to use instead of I'm called to love and accept and erase boundaries. And when I feel that tension on the inside, when I feel that inspiration to do something about it, it's not a time to start being like, well, how does this fit into my socially constructed rules or life or doing I'm called to break that crap down. I'm called to love. I'm called to embrace 
the smelliest, the weirdest, the whatever, and make sure that they sense my love. Because when I was smelly, when I was in Oshkosh Bagosh, when I was whatever, there were people who decided to love me. And there was a Jesus and a God and a divine who wanted me to know at all moments that there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing you could do. There's no smelliness that you could get in the way from my love. Like it's just here. And so us being a community, we need to embrace this Sunday mornings for sure. Yes, we need to live this outside our life, and the message is all about that, but we're ending on us as a community, as a spiritual community of Bloom. Does everyone who show up here, and I'm asking you individually this question, everybody in this room that's surrounding you right now, everyone that's not here, but is part of this community, do they know that you accept them? That you think that they belong, that you love them, that you appreciate their differences? How can we do that even more? Because I, t I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that are like, I don't know if Bloom's the place anymore because I, I think I think differently than everybody else. I think I, I've got different beliefs or I think no one likes me because I'm nerdy or I'm this or I'm passionate about who knows what. And so they start, they start creating their own barriers that we need to actively be pulling down so that people feel like, no, you're here. I need you. I need your difference of opinion. Even if we dis dispute something in discussion where I'm like, ah, that's not like BS Keenan, I actually think this. I appreciate your difference. It caused me to think. It caused me to, to enlarge my perspective and look at it from something else. Your thoughts are needed. And to be honest, I think there is still, we have amazing discussion and amazing honesty, but I think there's still a little veil sometimes where you're like, ah, I kind of want to say this, but I'm not sure what everyone else is going to think. And some of those topics You'd be amazed every freaking one of you say to me, like, oh, I kind of think this, but I'm nervous what everyone else would think. And I'm like, yeah, you're all saying that. No, no one else could say that or think that. Well, you'd be surprised at how many of you are thinking that same thing, but you're, you're still nervous. If I say this out loud, what's someone going to think about me or what they're going to do? And so the parting thought then is like, yes, let's bring this into life, but we better make sure that this place is one that is radical inclusion, that people know that they're needed, that they're loved, that they belong. No matter how, the, the weirder you are and the more different you are, you are needed even more. We need your perspective, your ideas, your thoughts. Like, bring it. Jesus, we just thank you for this opportunity we've had to start a conversation that we'll take into discussion now. We just ask that you help us to be brave and honest as we wrestle and talk about this together. We just thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name, amen.